Okay, I'm sorry for those of you who weren't here last week. We are in a series. Um, I'm envisioning this to probably carry for several weeks. So if you weren't here last week, you may not catch some of the stuff that I reflect back to. Uh, if you're not going to be here next week, and you won't have that to look forward to. Um, but I know this, the word of God does not return void. You know, if you're listening, if you're reading, if you're uh, considering, contemplating the word of God, you're going to get something out of this morning. If all you've got is a, a little slice of the pie, you won't go away unfed. You'll, you'll get something out of this. The book of Hebrews is is rich, it's deep, it's a... Uh, a wonderful um, book to explore for uh, the deeper things of God. The writer of Hebrews even says, hey, let's leave behind the, the mundane and, and basic principles of Christ and let's go on. Let's move on to deeper things. So uh, Hebrews does that. You know, there'll, there'll be something in this this morning, I'm sure. Look at, and heaven agrees. I mean, gee. I want to thank that angel up there in that. <laughs> Just confirming that. <laughs> thank you, Eric. So uh, last week we, we finished our talk focused on how committed God is to the new covenant. I'd like to pick up again at that point uh, in Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 20. While at the same time, I'm going to be introducing you to Melchizedek this morning, and uh, the better priesthood of the believer, all right? So Hebrews six seventeen through 20, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we just... Uh, lift up this word, these scriptures to your throne of grace this morning. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to come as the great teacher. Reveal to us Jesus Christ in these verses. Show us, O oh God, those things that you desire us to understand, to know, to apprehend, uh, to apply to our lives in the days that you've given us on this earth, that we might glorify you that we might be a help to others, O oh God, and that we would bring praise to the name of Jesus Christ in all the earth. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, these verses are so rich in their content that we could sp spend weeks just here. I, we might do that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but we'll start with three primary focuses. Uh, first is God's oath. The second is Melchizedek. And then a peek behind the curtain, and we'll just see how far we get today and pick up again next week. So first off is God's oath, uh, which we touched on last week in Jeremiah 
31, 35 through 37. I just want to make a connection here from Hebrews back to Jeremiah because for years in reading Hebrews 6, 17, and 18, where it says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. I never knew in reading Hebrews what those two unchangeable things were. I thought that one of them was, well, it's impossible for God to lie. I thought that was one of the unchangeable truths, but I couldn't, no matter how I searched or twisted it around, held it on its side, I couldn't find the second one until I found that the writer of Hebrews was simply quoting out of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah continues on and reveals these two immutable truths, all right, these two promises uh, that were unchangeable. In Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37, it says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. These are unchangeable things, okay? Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, see, if these unchangeable orders departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Now, Jeremiah is reflecting back on this oath that God has said. He said, a new covenant I'm going to make with the people of Israel. I will write my laws in their mind and inscribe them on their hearts, and I will remember their sins no more. And he made such a commitment that if he breaks the commitment to this covenant, the sun and the moon will stop, the tides will stop, you know, the earth will just cave in on itself. That's how unchangeable his commitment is to this covenant. This covenant comes right up to us in this day. This covenant was uh, affirmed and gotten by what Jesus did on the cross. Okay, So this is a direct reflection up to us for our time. So the writer of Hebrews confirms the hypotheses I had last week of God's commitment, then firms it up even more by further stating that it is impossible for God to lie. See, so if this covenant breaks down, you know, scrap the Mayan calendar, you know, it's all over. If this covenant that Jesus put into place fails, everything fails with it. God is committed, okay? So we're in very solid ground here as regards God's commitment to the new covenant, and he is more than willing to do his part. The question for us is, are we more than willing to do our part and to be in relationship with the living God? Okay, so I'm just kind of reflecting back on what we covered last week about the new covenant, okay? Uh, the second thing is this character, Melchizedek, okay? Who exactly is he within the framework of the scriptures, and what does he have to show us? Let's start with the book of Hebrews. We find Melchizedek mentioned three times. He's mentioned twice in Hebrews 5, verses 5 through 10. So also Christ is 
did not glorify himself to be made a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though being a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And being perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, being called by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then the final reference, which brings us right back to God's immutable promise in Hebrews 6, 18 through 20. So that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which is what? The salvation that Christ offers to us. If you've come to that, if you've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you prayed the prayer, if you've made the confession, if you said, yes, Lord, I want to lock into your kingdom. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to rule over, have dominion over me. You can be assured he will. He will be faithful to the end. If he fails, everything fails with it. Okay, that's how, how committed he is, not only to the covenant, but to you as an individual who have entered from your side into that same covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ. Both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews is looking back through time by way of the scriptures at this man Melchizedek, but a strange thing happens. He keeps seeing Jesus reflected through the life, through the biblical presentation of, and the ongoing references to Melchizedek. He's no longer just seeing this historic person. He keeps seeing the person of Jesus Christ reflecting up to him. He keeps seeing this interaction between this character Melchizedek in the past, this man, God, Jesus, Savior of the world, in his present now, and in the interim period, God dealing with this issue of another priesthood. And if you were Hebrew in that time, this is big stuff to you. So what's more is that the writer does not initially access the story of Melchizedek, as we're about to do, but instead goes first to God's commentary and understanding of Melchizedek as stated in the kingly Psalms. Okay, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order 
of Melchizedek. Now check out the language that David uses here. The Lord says to my Lord. The Lord, in Hebrew, Jehovah, the self-existent or eternal. He was the Jewish national name of God, Jehovah the Lord. So that works out good, right? right? The Lord, Jehovah, says, and obviously David is listening, and immediately he presents us with a conundrum because David states that Jehovah is speaking to my Lord, which is Adonai. The Lord Jehovah said to my Lord Adonai. Okay, So my Lord Adonai is from an unused root, meaning to rule, to be sovereign. That is a controller of human or divine. Lord, master, owner. And in Israel, when this psalm is written, that person is David. See, if you lived in Israel at this time and bumped into David on the street, you would address him as, my Lord the King, Adonai the King, my Adonai the King. But David said that Jehovah the Lord said to my Adonai, my Lord, that means David recognizes a mediator between himself and God, and this mediator has more and greater authority than he does as king. In confronting the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus presents the same conundrum. In Luke 20, verses 41 and following, he says, But he said to them, the scribes and Pharisees, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? You see, it's it's a conundrum. It's a bit bewildering within the framework of understanding lordship in the natural realm. So what is it that David bows to as having more authority than he has as king? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David is not looking forward to a messianic manifestation of Jesus as the son of David, but back to the type and shadow where Christ is seen as Melchizedek, who is both king and high priest. A combination. Before we move on from here, I want to just throw out some interesting statements that connect us back to some of the issues we touched on last week, just so you see the continuity in the scriptures here. Remember, we talked about last week, uh, Psalm 23, where the Lord says, I will set a table in the midst of your enemies. You remember that? Hmm? Here he says, Rule in the midst of your enemies, in Psalm 110. Okay? And again, the reinforcement of God's commitment to the new covenant ministered by a better priesthood. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. It's like he keeps 
uh, bringing this, inculcating us with this idea that God is so committed to this covenant, he has sworn and he will not change his mind. Okay? And, and I think that those are two elements that we really could get a hold of for our lives. God is so committed to me. He's so committed to my salvation. He's so committed to the better things of the kingdom of God being active in my life. And that even in the midst of my enemies, if I can tap into this better priesthood, I can sit down and feast. I don't have to be overwhelmed by circumstances and situations. I can find a way in Christ through this better priesthood to celebrate what God is doing in my life, even in trials and testings. Even as Christ did in the Garden of Gethsemane, he learned through obedience and through suffering, but he found the better way. Now we know in light of New Testament teachings that David is seeing Jesus as Adonai, as my Lord but he is seeing him as a direct reflection of this man, Melchizedek. So let's meet Melchizedek, where he has his one and only actual appearance in all of the scriptures. He only shows up one time. When he comes out to meet and bless Abraham, returning from a rescue mission and a battle in Syria, in Genesis 14. I'm just going to read this whole little chapter. And um, you'll have to forgive me for mutilating some of these names. I may just mumble on some of them. they're, They're on the board anyway. So Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, it's what I keep tripping over. I can't do that word. <laughs> king of Elam and title king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Admah, Shemember, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all of these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, at the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chilamara, and the king. <laughs> I know it, huh? I, I got to take classes in Syrian or something. I don't know. <laughs> and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphaim and Ashtaroth, Karanaim and Zuzim. Can you imagine living in that time? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'll give a call, you know, see what's up. I, hey, Wiz. Thank you, God, for a language. Right? Huh. Okay, and the Horites in the hill country in, of Sierra and as far as El Paran at the border of the wilderness, then they turned back and came to En Misfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, who were dwelling at Hazazon, Tamar, then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoah, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddam, and Chelamah, king of Elam, title king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elsia, 
you know, God has a sense of humor. He could have just said, and all of these kings and all of those kings. He keeps putting those names in there to trip me up. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. In other words, tar pits, hot tar pits. Okay. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, uh, brother of Eshcol and Anar. Uh, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them. Okay, so you've got five kings with their armies have taken several cities captive, and they've got all these people, and they're heading back to up above Damascus in Syria where they lived. And Abram and 318 local yokels, okay? These are shepherds, uh, they're herdsmen, you know, they're living in tents. Uh, they certainly don't have uh, iron or steel weapons at this point in time. They probably have spears that are sharpened sticks or maybe flint, flint ends, you know. At the best, they could have bronze or brass swords, all right? This is not... Uh, the Navy SEALs, it's not a SWAT team, it's not special forces, uh, it's a, a man who is in relationship with the living God who is offended that his family has been overwhelmed and taken by the hand of the enemy. He is indignant and he is in pursuit of the one who pursued those who loved him and took him captivity. Okay? And I'll tell you, when you've got that in motion, you've got a mighty army on the move. Okay? You get an indignant man rescuing his family from the clutches of the evil one, and you've got an army. You've got a fight on your hands. And this is what Abram had. And he went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. Uh, Dan is right at the border of uh, Lebanon. It's way up in northern Israel. He is at this point, traveled what would be by car going 60 miles an hour, six hours travel time from the Dead Sea up to the border, the border of Lebanon at the city of Dan, which uh, the ruins are still there today of the city of Dan. Okay? So I don't know how long that would take on foot, but probably the better part of a week he's been chasing these kings. Okay? And he divided his forces again by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chalamara and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, 
by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of, of the men who went with me. Let Anah, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Now, the king of Sodom in scripture is always a type of the lore of the world. Remember, the lore of the world is what captivated Lot when Abram said, you know, our sheep have gotten too many. You choose somewhere, I'll go the other way. And Lot looks down at the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, oh, I like it down there. And he chose down there, and this is the result of that. Okay? He ends up in captivity. He ends up in bondage. This same king of Sodom and comes, comes to Abram and he says, listen, give me the people, give me the souls. Who's that sound like to you? Give me the souls. You can have all the money. You can have all the fame. Listen, I'll make you rich. I'll make a way for you. You'll be successful in this life. Just give me the souls. Yeah, right. But Abram will have nothing of that. So I want nothing from you. You'll, you'll have no part in my life. I have lifted up my hand to the living God. Mm -hmm. So the writer of Hebrews simplifies the whole story. I could have done that, but... <laughs> in Hebrews 7, 1 and 2, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth or paid a tithe to. So in simplifying the story, the writer in one instance adds information about Melchizedek while at the same time he leaves out a vital piece of info. Okay? Namely, what was the blessing and why he gave it to Abram. We discover, first of all, what he does show us is the significance in the meaning of the name Melchizedek as well as in the position he held as king of Salem. Okay? He is both king of righteousness, that's what the name Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. Okay? By function, because he is king of Salem, Salem being Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king, and the Jews will tell you, you know, when, you, when you're referring to the city of the great king, the great king was David. It was David's city. As a matter of fact, the original set settlement that David took from the Jebusites became known as the city of David, the city of the great king. So for the Jew, the great king is David. Okay? But David in the Psalms calls another lord, Adonai. So maybe Melchizedek, as king of Salem, is the great king. 
But in reading Hebrews and searching the Psalms, we discover that although Melchizedek is both king of righteousness and king of peace, as well as high priest, there is still one who is greater positionally. Hebrews 5, 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, Prince of Peace, King of Righteousness, High Priestly Intercessor, and Son of the Living God, this is the great King. There is no other great King. And why do I say that? I say it because of the unmentioned blessing that Melchizedek gives to Abram. We see it in Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Melchizedek set a table for Abram in the presence of his enemy, the king of Sodom. And the table that he set is what we as Christians call the Lord's table, communion the very symbol of the new and everlasting covenant. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Melchizedek came out to Abram for two reasons, which are clearly stated in James 2.23. The scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abram, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Abraham believed God. In other words, his faith was not in faith. His faith was not in faith. It was in God. He walked in the victory of God for the well-being of others, resisting the lore of the world and the devil, and because of that, God considered him a friend. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, By faith Abraham obeyed, and when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, ears with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward. He was looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God himself. Melchizedek, as representing the person of Jesus Christ, is moved by Abraham's faith and friendship to allow him to receive the original First Communion. not awesome? And enter into the new and everlasting covenant 2,200 years before the Last Supper took place in the upper room. And so... Jesus, 
as the better high priest who has entered into heavenly places on our behalf can also bring to us now, now, those great and glorious future promises of God awaiting us in the kingdom that is yet to come. And describe some of that in Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then I saw the new heaven the new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Isn't that the new covenant? He's already brought the future back to us by allowing us to enter into this new covenant. Now, here's the good part. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. There'll be no more mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. These former things shall pass away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to feel no more pain? To not have to carry the burden of shame anymore. To never feel alone. To never feel overwhelmed. To never sob your heart out again. Because God has touched your life and he's there in the moment. We have a way of access to that. 